Please turn with me to John's Gospel. We're going to look this morning at John chapter 17, beginning at verse 13. And I want you to pay particular attention to verses 20 to 26. And, and I want you to have this question in mind sort of throughout, but particularly as we get near the end of the message this morning. What's the last thing that Jesus asks for from his Father before he goes to the cross? What is the last thing that Jesus asks for from his Father before he goes to the cross? Verse 13, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And that would be you. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. And loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this, your word. Thank you for every word of it from the beginning of Genesis to the last words of the revelation. But we Thank you this morning for this precious portion of your word. And I ask you that you would help us this morning as we seek to think your thoughts after you and feel the glorious weight of the things that you prayed for before you went to the cross. Lord Jesus, help us by your spirit, we ask in your name. Amen. Please be seated. I want to begin this morning a uh, short series before we go back to Romans, which has become the staple of the life of our church for the last three and a half years, though we've been away from it and come back to it. 
We're going to be away from it for just a, a four, maybe five more weeks. And I want to focus on some of our core convictions as a church. And you can think of these core convictions as sort of overarching, guiding principles or values. You can think of them um, as things that matter to us, things that matter to us, or things that should matter to us, things that we should value, things that are right to value. And here they are. The grace of God, worship, the scriptures, and mission. Or to create a kind of a rhythm and a coherence among these four things. The grace of God, the worth of God, the word of God, and the mission of God. The grace of God, the worth of God, the word of God, and the mission of God. Now let me give you some reasons quickly for why we want to do this. We're at the beginning of a new year. It's good to be reminded of some things as we head into a new year. These things, it seems to me, set a kind of a trajectory for us. They set a course for us, or they keep us on course. Paul and Peter are both very fond of using the words, remember and remind. Remember and remind. So at the beginning of the year, I'd like to remember some things with you. I'd like to remind us of some things. And then here's another reason. God continues to bless us with new faces. Just last week, one of our seasonal couples said, who are all these people? And that's a beautiful thing. So a reason for wanting to do this is, as it were, to get us all on the same sheet of music singing the same song so that folks know who and what we are. And then here's a third thing. And this is probably the most important reason or rationale for wanting to do this. Foundations are typically below ground. And because they are typically below ground, we don't see them. And what is out of sight is very easily put out of mind. We hear the phrase, we use the phrase, well, that goes without saying. For those of you who have been around here for a few years, you know what my problem is with things that go without saying. The problem with things that go without saying is that they go without saying. And we think that they are assumptions, but frankly, very often they slip off the radar and they become hidden, distant, unseen And even forgotten. This will sound arrogant. This will sound patronizing. It could sound judgmental. But I am absolutely convinced that most of the church in the United States of America does not know why it exists. It does not know why it exists whether conservative or liberal, whether evangelical or not evangelical, whether traditional or contemporary, much of the church, I'd say even most of the church in America, does not know why it exists. 
And because it doesn't know why it exists, at least I'm persuaded of that, it seems that it's really, really important to me to begin with some foundational and basic ideas, some things we do not want to lose sight of. And the first of them is this. We begin with the grace of God, which is to say that we begin with the God of grace. I I don't want to get sidetracked here, but I will just suggest to you that grace is one of those words that is losing its meaning and its significance, and it's losing its meaning and significance just like the term evangelical did in the last half of the 20th century. This word is beginning to lose its meaning and its substance because it is being disconnected from a deep and thoughtful understanding of the God to whom and about whom and from whom are all things. And so when we say we begin with the grace of God, we're beginning with the God of grace. And if you want a simple definition of what grace is, I'll steal a definition from Jamie Smith, James Smith, who teaches at Calvin College in Michigan describes the grace of God, defines the grace of God in this way. It is God revealing Himself in His works of creation and providence. And from God revealing Himself in His works of creation and providence and then redemption, we understand that everything is a gift. Everything is a gift. That's a definition of grace. And it is big, and it is thorough, and it is pervasive. Everything is a gift, freely given, apart from merit. Everything from your mere existence, then beyond your mere existence to your eternal happiness. Everything is a gift. And I want to suggest to you, you won't understand Christianity You won't be able to make sense of the Bible until you understand that everything that you are and everything that you have is a gift freely given. That is what grace is. And again, you'll not be able to understand the grace of God apart from a growing and deepening apprehension of the God of grace. And this was where I think the modern church is in trouble. It doesn't begin with God. Look, I care about this stuff. I'm not here to pick a fight. But I've been at it for 40 years. And over the course of those four decades as a Christian and in the ministry of the gospel, the shift has taken place from something theocentric and Christocentric to something anthropocentric. The question is not who is God, what is God. The question is who am I, what am I, and what do I need from God? Now let me tell you something. God cares a great deal more than you and I what it is that we need. But God, in the Gospel, 
God in grace begins with himself. I wonder how many how many discussions you've heard, how many sermons you've heard, how many messages you've heard using the kind of language that you used earlier in this service with respect to God. There is only one living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a completely pure spirit, invisible, without bodily parts or human emotions, unchangeable, immensely vast, eternal, beyond our understanding, beyond our understanding, almighty, completely wise, completely holy, completely free, completely absolute. God has all life, glory, goodness, and blessedness in and of himself. He alone is all-sufficient in and unto himself. See, where the church is in desperate need is precisely at this point, this point of thinking deeply and thinking hard, thinking our way into the glorious incomprehensibility that God is, and yet while incomprehensible, knowable. There are things that we can know about God. Because God has revealed himself in his works of creation and providence and in his works of redemption. So we have to begin with God. And I'd invite you to come tonight because we're going to continue to begin with God and talk about God and tease out some of what is represented in this short section from the Confession of Faith. So what do we believe about God? What have we affirmed about God? I can't, I can't, do you know how painful this is? I have to do this in the next 20 minutes. What do we believe about God? Well, here's the first thing we believe about God. We believe that he exists. See, that's one of those things that goes without saying, isn't it? It goes without saying that he exists. But do you understand what you're affirming when you say that God exists? Here's what you're saying. You're saying what the confession says, that he has all glory, life, goodness, and blessedness in and of himself. He alone is all-sufficient in and unto himself, nor does he need any of his creations or derive any glory from them. Which is to say, God's existence is explained in all of its resplendent wonder and mystery and glory in terms of himself. There's a word that's used to describe this. The theologians have given us a word. They've culled through their Latin dictionaries and they found a word. I'll spell it for you. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Aseity. It, it means simply from or out of self. From or out of self. There's another word that's used to describe God. And, and by the way, the text for this little, um, this little commentary on the existence of God, the text for this is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. Don't you find it fascinating that God doesn't argue for his own existence when the Bible begins to be unfolded? He just affirms it. In the beginning, God. 
That's the text that we're unpacking when we talk about the aseity of God, that God exists in, of, and by himself. The other word that's used is the word independence. God is independent of all of his creatures, of anything else in the universe. He does not depend That's a word that's taking on different connotations these days. Depend. He doesn't depend upon anything. We want to affirm that we are independent. We want to try to be independent. How's it working for us? Look, I don't mean to be crass here. But you begin your life eating baby food... And unless you're taken in an instant, there's a good probability you'll end your life eating baby food. You begin your life sucking nutrients through a straw. You may end your life sucking nutrients through a straw. You may end your life with a needle in your arm, utterly and entirely dependent upon something outside yourself to keep you alive. And every moment in between those two poles is a moment in which you live a life of dependent existence. You are dependent. God is not. God is not. Bill Cosby asked the question over 40 years ago in probably the first record I ever owned. Asked the question, why is there air? But the real question is, why is there anything as opposed to nothing? Why is there anything at all? If something exists at all, then something must have power to exist in order to explain sufficiently the fact that other things exist. If nothing existed back then, nothing would exist now, and there would be no then to refer to. But you see, what we affirm when we affirm that God exists is that he has power in and of himself to be. And that, my friends, should stagger us. It should cause us to marvel and wonder at the magnitude of the being of God. And when you sit on the beach here in this glorious place, or when you do what I did yesterday afternoon, you go for a 20-mile bike ride on a glorious Saturday afternoon, and you look at the sky, and you look at the color, and you breathe the air, the only sufficient explanation for all of it, both your ability to breathe the air and the delight you take in breathing the air and looking at the sky, the only thing sufficient to account for all of it is a God, the magnitude of whose power and ability not only to create but to uphold the universe completely exceeds our grasp. And the power that creates and upholds the universe is the power by which He sustains his own eternal existence. Stunning. God exists. But then we use these words. We use these words immense and infinite. They're words that are reflected in the confession of faith. And 
And sometimes words that are sort of close to them show up in the Scriptures. But when God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, God is referring to His infinity. That He is limitless with respect to time. He exists before time, above time, beneath time, through time, and after time. He is not conditioned or controlled or in any way constrained by time. He is infinite. He is limitless with respect to time. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who accounts for the beginning of time, the one who will bring time to its appointed conclusion. And there isn't anybody else. I'm glad the Mayans were wrong. Or ran out of calendar space on their piece of rock or whatever it was. But my friends, history will have an end. There is an appointed end to history. And God is the one who has appointed it. And He is the one who will bring it to pass. He is limitless with respect to time. He is limitless with respect to space. This psalm I know is a favorite psalm for many of you. It's a psalm that, it will, that will be read, will be quoted, will be referred to quite, quite often, I would guess, next Sunday, which is Pro-Life Sunday. Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit up, you know, sit down. You know when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Which is to say, if I want to turn right and God does not want me to turn right, I will not turn right. If God wants me to go forward, I will go forward. If God wants me to back up, I'll back up. If I want to go forward and God wants me to go backwards, I will go backwards. Let's dethrone, shall we, the exaltation of self in this culture and understand that there is one who is high and exalted and lifted up. Verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Two things. You can't get there ahead of God. The wings of the dawn are simply the first beams of light that shoot across the horizon as the sun rises in the morning. If you can travel at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, if you can travel faster than that, you can get there ahead of God. But you see what David is saying, what the psalmist is saying. Jonah found this out, didn't he? You can't flee God. You can't escape, because wherever you go, he is there ahead of you. Here's the point, and it's the second point. When people talk about God's immensity, they talk about the fact that he fills all of space, and that is why you can't be any place where God is not. 
But the other thing that they mean when they talk about God's immensity, that he is limitless with respect to space, infinitely large. The other thing that they mean by that term immensity is that the totality of God is present in every point of space. So if you catch the wings of the dawn and you fly to the remotest parts of the sea, you don't bump into God's elbow or left kneecap. You bump into the totality of who God is. And the next morning, when you try to get up and go farther, you will bump into the totality of who God is at that point. That is why the promises of God are so comforting to his people. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am present with you in every point of space, across every moment of time. God is immense. God is limitless with respect to time and space. And you hear David referring to yet another feature, characteristic attribute of God, and that is his knowledge. You've searched me. You've known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. I don't know that it was this passage which provoked Charles Hodge to include a couple of paragraphs in his systematic theology on the knowledge of God. And I won't bore those of you who have heard this from me 48 times already with hearing it again. But for those of you who haven't heard it, Charles Hodge has this wonderful insight into the knowledge of God that the knowledge of God encompasses not only particular things as they are, meaning you, the chair that you're seated upon, the asteroids flying through space, the planets spinning on their axes, making their way around stars. He not only knows particular things, but he knows particular things in all of their actual relationships to one another. He knows that Pat and George are sitting next to each other. He knows that Zach and Barb are sitting next to each other. But he also knows all of the possible permutations that there are for the nearly 200 people that are in this room. All of the possible arrangements that there could be among the people who are in this room. He knows all of that. And his knowing goes beyond simply material and physical things, as David affirms, to the thoughts in your heads and all of the possible permutations and arrangements there could be of the thoughts in your heads with respect to the person sitting next to you, with whom or in whom you take great delight as well as the person next to you from whom you may be estranged this very moment. He knows all of that. So he knows not only particular things and their actual relationships and all of their potential relationships, but he knows things that don't exist but which could exist or which exist in one form but could exist in another form in all of their actual relationships to things existing and all of the potential relationships to those things. When David says, God knows me, he's reflecting just a bit of the magnitude of what we affirm when we say God knows everything. God exists. He's immense. He's infinite. He's limitless with respect to time and space. And the totality of Him is here with us as we worship and is present with your brothers and sisters in Tanzania as they worshipped earlier today. But there's more than that 
And this is where we begin to make our way to John 17. There is more than that. It isn't just that God is big. It is that God is triune. He is a trinity. Mystery? Sure. Why would you have a problem with God being mysterious? Why would we have a problem with God in his being and wisdom and holiness and power and goodness and love? Why would we have a problem with the notion that that God would exceed our grasp? If he doesn't exceed our grasp, he is no longer God, and we have become God, right? But God is triune, a deep and profound mystery. Three persons, one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the eternal community. And I want you to reflect on the words that Jesus employs as he speaks to his father. And yes, I understand we cross over a threshold, not into one mystery, but as J.I. Packer puts it in his book, Knowing God, we cross a threshold and contemplate two mysteries. The mystery of the eternal triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the incarnate God, Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. And we understand in John 17 that a true person, a real man, is praying this prayer. But listen to the words that Jesus uses because he uses words descriptive of, characteristic of, his relationship with the Father in eternity. He used the word joy, that my joy may be in them. He used the word one, suggesting unity, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, me in you, unity. And he used the word love repeatedly. Joy, unity, love. And then glory. What is the glory of God? Let me give you a definition. This is my definition. Theologians here may take exception. We can chat after the service. What is the glory of God? It is the God of glory dwelling in perfect unity and harmony reveling in an inexhaustible love which explodes forth in overflowing joy. The glory of God is the God of glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, dwelling in perfect unity and harmony reveling in an inexhaustible love which explodes forth in an overflowing joy. I read years ago that when Charlie Chaplin 
learned that there was no life on Mars, as he scanned the vastness of space, he said, I feel lonely. God is never lonely. And when you tie this notion of immensity and infinity and this knowledge of knowing, which for the Hebrew meant a great deal more than simply knowing facts and arranging facts and coordinating and manipulating facts, it meant intimacy, it meant delight. When you take all of that and you pile it all up on top of each other, here is what you have. You have a triune God who has an infinite capacity for love, That is to receive it and an infinite capacity to give love. And what you have in the Trinity is God the Father who finds in God the Son an object of infinite loveliness and beauty, an object adequate to, suitable to his infinite capacity for love. And what is the Son, who is the image of the invisible God, but the second person of the Godhead, who likewise, in the image of His Father, has an infinite capacity, an infinite capacity for love, and who finds in the Father an object suitable, adequate to His infinite capacity. And what do you have in the Holy Spirit The Holy Spirit of God who is fully God with an infinite capacity for delighting in and being consumed by and finding great joy in the love which the Father has for the Son and which the Son has for the Father. It's a love fest, my friends. Utterly, perfectly, entirely content complacent, delighted, and joy-filled infinitely in one another's company. And so here is the logical question. Why would God create anything at all? He doesn't have to. And I'll give you Jonathan Edwards' answer. And this is the kind of stuff that we so desperately need in our day and time. Jonathan Edwards' great essay, The End for Which God Created the World, can be summarized in this way. Why did God create the world? Why does he uphold and sustain the world by his providence? The answer is this. His purpose in creating and sustaining the world is so that he the God of glory might be glorified in the distribution of his own joy upon the objects of his affection. God created the world so that he might gather up into himself the objects of his affection, that they might know the joy of his eternal existence. His purpose for you is that you might know your highest happiness 
in him. And what about redemption? Oh, my goodness. What about redemption? Why does Jesus come into the world to live, to die, to be entombed, to be gathered up? So that the last thing for which he prays might come to pass. The last thing Jesus asks from his Father before he goes to the cross is that you might be with him. Verse 24, Father, I desire, this is what I want, Father. This is what I want. You love me. You are glorifying me with the glory I had with you before the worlds began. Father, this is what I want. This is the last thing I ask for. I ask that those whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To enjoy in your presence the joy, the love, the glory that we knew together before the worlds were created. What is it for God to be a gracious God? What is it for us to celebrate the grace of God? It is to celebrate the God of grace who in his works of creation and then providence and then redemption has a single purpose. And that purpose is to gather up those whom he has loved before the foundation of the world, those whom he has entrusted to his beloved son. His purpose is that those might be gathered up into the midst of a joy that will never, ever end. That in God, because of Christ, they might know their highest happiness To celebrate the grace of God, to be thankful for the grace of God, is to understand that from beginning to end, everything is a gift. It is to understand that everything begins with this God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this feels so pathetic but I trust you that somehow in the things we've thought about this morning, somehow our hearts and minds might have been expanded to comprehend a little bit more deeply, a little bit more the wonder of who you are and the wonder of what you do. Thank you that apart from merit, you give lavishly and liberally to the praise of your glorious grace in creation and redemption. And now, Father, hear us as we sing and be with us as we come to the table of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.